0: I'm Matt Peterson, and this is The Present Past from The Atlantic. On this show, we compare two snapshots in time, the old story and the new story, and we talk about where we go from here. I'm really curious what today's guest thinks about our old story. I've got Leda Hong Fincher in the studio with me today. Leda is a scholar and a journalist, and she has a new book out called Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China. I asked Leda to read a story by the writer Pearl Buck from 1923. If you don't know Pearl Buck, she grew up in China before the communist revolution and then came to the U.S. and wrote very successful novels about it. This piece from The Atlantic was apparently her first published work. It's nonfiction and it's called In China Too." The old story is about how women in China were just starting to undergo big social changes and Buck describes talking to a young woman who just spent a year at boarding school and she came back with a kind of awakening and an interest in women's rights. And so Buck asks the girl, what do you know of suffrage? And the girl answers, oh, a great deal, teacher. I know that only in this country are women so helpless. Why, in other countries, I've heard they do everything they like. They may go out and take walks and play games and never bind their feet. It's even said that they walk with men, here a delicate flush. But of course, I do not believe that.
1: Okay, let's bring Leda in. Hi, Leda. Hi, thanks so much for having me.
0: I want to start by putting this moment in China in historical context. So this is 1923, and it's just about the time that the Communist Party is getting started, and they finally take over in 1949. So what was the relationship between this early women's movement and the rise of the Communist Party?
1: Um, Well, I— I read in my new book, Betraying Big Brother, that actually feminism played an incredibly important role in China's revolutionary history. That includes the communist revolution, um, which began in the 1920s. And in fact, um, this piece by Pearl Buck was written two years after the Chinese Communist Party was founded. So so, uh, the communist revolution had already uh, begun to spread at the time that Pearl Buck wrote this essay. Um, But feminism extended quite well beyond that too. At the turn of the century, there were some really important visionary feminist revolutionaries in China who were writing incredibly bold essays um, way ahead of their time. And um, one of those revolutionaries, Qiu Jin, was beheaded in 1907 for plotting to overthrow the Qing Empire. So – Feminism and and the idea of women's emancipation had already played a really important role in China for for decades before uh, nineteen twenty three when this essay was written.
0: Yeah, and then what role did women play in that communist in the Communist Party's actual you know march to power?
1: Right. Well, it's very interesting because when the Communist Party was founded in China in nineteen twenty one. Um, Women played a very important role, and even the male founders of the party embraced the idea of feminism and thought that uh, feminism would be a really good rallying cry to mobilize women to join the revolution, Um, and also the idea of gender equality was at the center of the revolution, the idea that everybody should have equality, women and men. Um, And I also write about certain women who, uh, well, in 1921, when the Communist Party first held its secret meetings in Shanghai, there was this woman, Wang Huiwu, who actually played an instrumental role in securing these secret meeting places for, for these party members to meet because they were being um, uh, chased by the the police at the time um, from the, the Nationalist Party. So um, women played an important role in the origins of the Communist Party in China. The idea of feminism and emancipation played an important role. But then uh, towards the end of the 1920s, uh, the men in the party basically pushed the women out, marginalized them. And in 1928, there was this – at an important Communist Party Congress that was held in Moscow. There was actually a formal document that was written that said that – that the idea of feminism was bourgeois and that the communist party had to move beyond that in China and place class, the class struggle, ahead of the struggle for gender equality.
0: And did that stick, that idea?
1: Well, um, it kind of did. So (laughs) even though uh, the communists finally won the revolution, they won this civil war against the nationalists in 1949, and the People's Republic of China was founded. Um, So uh, feminism, the term feminism was not used. In fact, it was kind of seen as taboo and bourgeois. But the idea of male-female equality was central to the founding of this new communist nation. And it was written into the constitution of the People's Republic. So, in the early days of the communist nation, under the leadership of Mao Zedong, who was the founder of this new, the People's Republic, um, of course, one of his most famous sayings was that women can hold up half the sky. And in the early communist era, the party mobilized women en masse into the workforce. They put them into work in factories in the cities and in the countryside. So. China achieved the world's highest female labor force participation and at the end of the 1970s, their female labor force participation in China was around 90%, which is really astronomically high. Um, So, of course, uh, women never truly had gender equality in China. I mean, even within the party, they were marginalized, even though they played such an important role at the beginning in fighting the revolution. Um, But at least economically, I mean, everybody was poor, so the gender gap, relatively speaking, was not that huge, but women had to play this double role of uh, assuming the burden of taking care of the children and the housework and working outside the home. Um, But there was certainly a lot of sexism at the time, in spite of all this rhetoric of gender equality. But um, as I've written in in both of my books, um, there was a huge resurgence of in gender inequality with the onset of market reforms, particularly in the nineties and two thousands.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to get to the present day in a minute, but let's stick with the past for a second. So this story, you know, I quoted this bit of it where this woman sort of presents herself. Pearl Buck presents her as this sort of modestly liberated woman, but it still feels like a very it's a it's a modest liberation let's say right it, and it still feels to me like it sits squarely within this trope that we have in the west of like asian women as submissive and family oriented um and i feel like that stereotype is still important here for us and the west and i'm curious like did did the communist revolution destroy that stereotype in china or does that that idea of of femininity and womanhood still hold a lot of sway in china
1: yeah, well, it's interesting because the revolution itself, and not just the revolution, but the early decades of the communist era, really did destroy that notion that women should behave according to these, you know, traditionally feminine ways. Um, that they should, you know, just be in charge of the household. In fact, the Communist Party deliberately tried to smash that idea, very successfully, I might add. Um, so a lot of women really were very happy to be liberated from the home. I mean, this article talks about foot binding. I mean, that's just that 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 was already going on a long time before the nineteen um, twenties.
0: The end of the practice.
1: Yeah, it was very. It was really ending. They were very very few people who were binding their feet by that point. Uh, the May 4th movement of 1919 was also a critical social movement that held up women's emancipation as one of the key rallying cries for the modernization of China, um, liberating itself from its feudal past and all of these traditions, including, you know, the oppression of women. That, that. Prominent male intellectuals and revolutionaries all agreed, well, virtually all of them agreed, that women had to play a much stronger role in society. They had to go work. Um, They had to be more independent, economically independent. All of these ideas were becoming very widely accepted. So, um, you know, at the time that Pearl Buck wrote this essay, in fact, she was kind of behind the curve.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. So I'm noticing something in your language, which is that you were talking about male intellectuals deciding things for the for women. And you talked earlier really about how the party put women to work. It's just to ask the obvious question. women did not have a lot of agency in the way that political decisions were being made about them in the Chinese government, right?
1: That's very true. Following the founding of the People's Republic in 1949, women uh, did not have much power at all in the party at that point. But in the 1920s, particularly in the early 1920s, they really did. Um, That was when the Communist Party was just founding. And uh, women did play an important role. They played uh, very decisive roles. not only in organizing the meetings, but starting um, schools to educate women, to teach them literacy, to teach them how to write. Because the vast majority of Chinese women at that point were illiterate. Um, and so women did play a really important organizational role in the young Communist Party. And it wasn't until the end of the 1920s that they were Pushed aside and marginalized, and the men decided that even even some of the men who initially thought feminism was really important later decided by the end of the 1920s that um, that in order to win over the the peasants, because of course um, you know in, in the Soviet Union uh, the communist revolution was really a worker led revolution. Um, but in China, it was a primarily agrarian society, and so uh, Mao Zedong decided that this revolution needed to enlist the farmers, the peasants, and so they were seen as heavily patriarchal. And so the male Communist Party leaders thought that the idea of feminism wouldn't go over too well in winning over um, these these patriarchal peasants, or heads of the Households, um, so that was that was just one reason, um, and also just just the natural sexism of men in the Communist Party played a role as well. Um, and so, uh, so by the time the People's Republic was founded in 1949, women no longer played an important role, and that was pretty deliberate on the part of the. Male-dominated party. Um, and that that's become even worse today, actually. I mean, at least in the early days of the communist era, the first few decades, you know, there were some some prominent women. Um, I mean, Mao's wife, Jiang Ting, for example, had a lot of power. Um but then she was brought down later. Uh, but, uh, but today, if you look at the upper echelons of the communist party, it's entirely male dominated and the representation of women and uh, elite politics has actually decreased since those very early communist days.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned that there was a sort of deliberate attempt to, um, put the interests of the party and the revolution first, right? That they thought that they needed to, the early party needed to, um, uh, win over the peasants, and so feminism wasn't going to fly. So this this dynamic is still what's going on, right, that that the Communist Party today puts its own survival ahead of any kind of egalitarian principle like feminism, right?
1: Yes. Um, well, I mean, it's gotten a lot more complicated today, of course. Um, so what happened to the early days was that at least gender equality played a really important rhetorical role. So the propaganda in the early days, in the 50s, 60s, even through the end of the 70s, really held up women as being able to do anything that men could do. And so there were a lot of propaganda posters of say, women driving tractors or bulldozers or being welders in these very traditionally masculine roles. Um, And that was an effort to just uh, put all women to work to building this new communist nation and boosting industrial development. Um, But even that rhetoric has completely been, I would say, almost fully erased today Ah, uh, particularly in the last two decades, and and especially under the current president chinese Chinese President Xi Jinping, where um there's been a real resurgence of Chinese traditional values and uh, Confucian values about the proper feminine role. So um, so the party today is kind of, reversing all of the policies and propaganda that it used in the first few decades after the founding of the People's Republic. Um, and they're trying to really push women to return to the home, to become very dutiful wives and mothers. And uh, and female labor force participation is really plummeting, along with a lot of other uh, measures of gender inequality are, are increasing. Like uh, the gender wealth gap is really skyrocketing, for example.
0: And is that is that picture of the woman um, that they are hearkening back to, is that similar to what you see in this Pearl Buck story? Is that even older?
1: Well, um, I think that uh, it's, it's pretty sad, actually, because a lot of the propaganda that you see today um, in the People's Daily, which is the primary mouthpiece of the Communist Party, um, or on Chinese central television does show very traditionally made up women wearing the um, often wearing the qipao the traditional tight-fitting embroidered dress, um really properly made up. And this is all described as being part of Chinese traditional Chinese culture that has existed sort of without change for thousands of years. But, of course, that is ignoring decades of um, revolutionary, revolutionary tumult where the party itself was uh, hoping to completely overturn all of these traditions. And, in fact, not just hoping, but they did. I mean, um, during the Cultural Revolution, they they were smashing Confucian temples, burning a lot of traditional books, um, and... Uh, you know, cutting off people's hair. Um, I mean, it was, um, so it it was very destructive of traditional Chinese culture during those years. But now it's become convenient again for the Communist Party to, to say that women should behave in a traditional Chinese way. And they claim that, you know, it, it's always been this way, but in fact, they're ignoring their own history.
0: Yeah. How how easy is it for them to convince people of these kind of alternate histories?
1: Well, I would say that a lot of young women in particular today are totally rejecting that propaganda. Um, so the young generation can be very progressive. Um, But the propaganda is much more effective with the older generation, the parents and elders and the family. And they're the ones who really exert the most direct pressure on young women in particular, pushing their daughters, for example, or young granddaughters into getting married early and into having babies early. Um, And so it is a lot of pressure on young women, on young men as well. To get married, um, but but especially if you're looking at the college-educated population, young women and men who have gone to college, um, they increasingly reject all of these uh, kinds of propaganda, and they they want a lot more for themselves. I mean, they want more, a lot more freedom to. Behave uh, as they want to, you know, make their own choices. Women want to control their own bodies, their own reproductive lives, and this is a real flashpoint because the Chinese government a couple of years ago got rid of the so-called one-child policy. Now it has a two-child policy, and it's very aggressively trying to push especially educated women into marrying early and having two babies while they're still in their 20s. Um, but that that policy is failing miserably. If you just look at the birth statistics, they're continuing to fall really dramatically,
0: yeah. So there's this conversation in the u s right now about feminism. Um I'm thinking of like the philosopher Kate Mann, who's been arguing that, you know, misogyny is sort of more subtle than just men hating women. It's a structure in which, you know, sort of women are disadvantaged and men are advantaged. And you have written, you wrote in your book that that what's happening in China sort of goes beyond that or back to that sort of other definition of misogyny where like the state is actively undermining women to keep itself in power or the party or however you want to define the relationship. Um, Can you talk about that?
1: Yes, and in fact, I read Kate Mann's book, Down Girl, and I thought it was terrific. Um, this idea, and, and I, I agree with that idea that misogyny is a way to keep women down. It's not necessarily hatred of women. So if you look at China, I have a chapter called China's Patriarchal Authoritarianism, where I argue that, in fact, the entire basis of authoritarian control in China is uh, the subjugation of women, keeping women down, keeping them confined to these very subservient roles of wife and mother, that women are supposed to maintain harmony in the home, they're supposed to have babies to rear the children, take care of the elderly. Um, but they're not supposed to go out into the world and work. That's the role of men. That Men are supposed to be head of the household and be the boss. So as long as women conform to those kinds of roles that are very docile and subservient, then they're seen as you know doing the right thing for the nation, um, that they're maintaining the social order and they're keeping the family stable and so there's a lot of propaganda that talks about family values in China as being critical to the stability of the nation um that when every family is harmonious and by that the, the government means you know every person is playing their correct role in the family the woman is subservient the man is the boss Um, the children obey the parents, um, and of course marriage is between a man and a woman, same-sex marriage is illegal. When everything is, you know, uh, uh, according to that kind of natural, uh, so-called natural order, then that leads to a harmonious nation where the entire country, the nation state of China is then stable and then will be stronger in the face of these perceived threats coming from outside from so-called hostile Western forces who are supposedly trying to undermine the Communist Party. How how effective
0: is this? I mean, you've written about these activists who are, you know, out there working to, you know, change women's lives. Is, is that in any way a backlash to this?
1: Yes. Uh, there's no question. I mean, um, this new feminist movement that I write about has grown uh, because of this dramatically rising gender inequality over recent years. And this is something that so many, particularly young women, particularly those who have gone to college... Um, But not just them either. There are high school girls. There are also older women. There are factory women who haven't gone to college. Uh, Women in recent years are increasingly really, not only are they unhappy, they've been unhappy for a long, long time, but now they're increasingly speaking out and making demands. They're speaking out about the injustice that they feel every day. Um, on so many levels like you know sexual violence there's an epidemic of sexual harassment and rape um, It's very hard to bring the perpetrators to justice. Um, there's rampant gender discrimination um, in university admissions, Um, women applying for admissions to a lot of university programs have to score higher than men in many cases on their university entrance exams. There's rampant gender discrimination in the workplace where employers are routinely, first of all, they often advertise blatantly that they do not want women applying for the jobs. So even if they interview women for the jobs, they routinely ask the women When are you having your baby? Have you had your baby? When are you having your second baby? Um, Those are questions that weed out so many incredibly talented women from jobs. And this is something that, you know, uh, I would say million, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of women in China experience personally. This is a personal grievance. And that's one of the big reasons why the women's rights movement resonates so broadly and has it has been really transformative, I think. And and it's very difficult for the government to to deal with it. It can't just wipe out this movement very easily.
0: So it, it can't wipe out the movement, but I imagine that it has consequences for the ability of women to talk about their bodies in public or, you know, their basic lives because all of <laughs> sort of women's lives are uh the family and the strength of the family is essential to the stability of the regime and you can't talk about anything that affects the stability of the regime in public that makes it very difficult for women to talk in public about normal things right
1: what's going on yeah it is very difficult but not impossible i mean what's extraordinary is that first of all you know there's very aggressive uh censorship of the internet And the censorship of feminist topics has become a lot more aggressive and sophisticated over the last few years. So, for example, last year, in 2018, the most prominent feminist social media account called Feminist Voices was banned on the night of International Women's Day. And that had been the primary conduit for the distribution of all sorts of feminist essays and artwork and ideas. Um, And their WeChat account, WeChat is China's most popular group messaging account, um, or or app, I should say, uh, that was also banned. And so that was a very heavy blow to the ability of feminists in China to get their message out. However, there are still a lot of individual feminist accounts, so it's not a total blackout on discourse online about women's rights issues. And it's amazing how much room there still is for women to talk about sexism and to talk about injustice and gender discrimination um, there was a study that just was uh, pu- uh, published a few weeks ago by uh, Hong Kong University that analyzed censorship on WeChat, which is this group messaging platform. They found that uh, that the MeToo hashtag was one of the top 10 most censored, topics on the internet last year which is really stunning given all the other very politically sensitive (laughs) topics out there in china that me too was one of them so um it's a very aggressive attack on um discourse around women's rights and feminism um and yet you know, it it hasn't been able to wipe out the women's rights movement. These feminist activists are continuing to be very creative and resilient and find new ways to get around the censorship and to continue organizing. But there's no question that it's very, very difficult for them. It's becoming increasingly difficult. Um so I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but but I do know that I, I, it would be very difficult for the government to do a mass jailing of feminist activists because I think that would have a terrible backlash for the government. Um, but but it's just an in- increasingly difficult environment to discuss women's rights. Um, but but it does show you the fact that the government is so afraid of feminism. It shows you that um, just more and more women all across China really, even if they don't explicitly call themselves feminists, they really want to speak out and make demands about their own rights. They want more rights for themselves.
0: Yeah. I want to go back to the article for a sec to the Pearl Buck story, and and um, one of the things that strikes me in reading it now, you know, a hundred years later, the, it's it's fairly orientalist in this very stilted way, and and Pearl Buck sort of inserts herself into this piece as the wise Western woman, like literally teaching the young Chinese woman about about feminism. But but I, I'm hoping you could tell me like what what is the actual sort of exchange of ideas between Chinese feminists and and the feminist movement or feminist thinkers more broadly outside of the country
1: right well i mean um when pearl buck was writing this article um i mean there's no question that at the turn of the century and in the may 4th movement of 1919 uh, the chinese people or chinese revolutionaries were being influenced by ideas from the outside Um, In fact, Japan had more of an influence than any other country. Um, The idea of human rights and women's rights, in fact, uh, largely came from Japan. Um, And even the idea of communism itself, the Communist Manifesto, uh, was first translated into Chinese in a feminist journal, um, at the turn of the century, and so feminism brought the idea of communism to China. So, um, so there's there's no question that you know China has been influenced by ideas from the outside. However, uh, feminism, homegrown feminism, um, you know, and and practiced by revolutionaries inside China, and also revolutionaries who were exiled at one time and planning revolutions from outside China and then coming back in. um, Even, you know, some of the communists were planning outside China before they brought the revolution to China. And, of course, the Soviet Union was heavily involved in the communist revolution. So China has, of course, been influenced by the outside. But what's happening today Um, If you look at the propaganda in 2017, the People's Daily labeled, quote-unquote, Western feminism as uh, a force used by, quote-unquote, hostile foreign forces to infiltrate China and to try to interfere in China's own management of women. So, So... So a lot of these feminist activists or activists who are prominent in the Me Too movement, you know, against sexual harassment, when they're being interrogated or intimidated by security agents, they're often accused of being tools of hostile foreign forces and say, you know, sometimes they're accused of being spies, but that's completely untrue. I mean, this feminist movement today is totally homegrown it's not coming from the outside even though there there's that me too hashtag that hashtag you know was just seen as a convenient um way to just see, for chinese feminist activists to take what was going viral globally and then to give m- more momentum to what these activists had been or had already been doing for years inside China they had already been you know mobilizing against sexual harassment and and rape inside China for years um but they seized on that the global momentum of the the hashtag me too and they adapted it um and one and and that hashtag was being censored by um China's internet monitors and then at at one point, there was an activist who came up with the idea of uh, using Me Too, which sounds like Me Too, but means rice and bunny rabbit in China. And so, she used the emojis for rice and bunny rabbit to try to get around the censorship, and that worked for a while. But then the censors caught onto that after a while. But um, but the fact is that feminism is not alien to China at all. In fact, you know, it has a long history going all the way back to at least the turn of the century um, inside China uh, a, and a very important history in its own revolutions.
0: Yeah, it, it strikes me that maybe there's something sort of self-fulfilling in that, I know that you've written about some of these activists who've gotten exiled essentially, who've had to come to the US for to study and, and, um, and just to get out of um, the danger that they're in there. Um, how do they think about, you know, being sort of activists who care about China and Chinese politics and life in China from from exile? What is that like for them?
1: Well, um, it's quite difficult. Um, one of the most important, I would say, self-exiled Chinese feminists is a woman named Lu Pin who was the founding editor of Feminist Voices, which was, until it was banned last year, the most influential feminist uh, media platform in China. And so she happened to be out of the country in 2015 when the police were rounding up feminist activists. She was in New York attending the UN Commission on the Status of Women. so. Uh, Had she been in China, I have no doubt she would have been jailed because she's incredibly influential and, um, you know, has played a leading role in strategizing a lot of their key activities. So she decided to stay in New York. And um, I know it's been very painful for her. She's also written about how painful it is to not be able to go back to China. Um, but at the same time, I have to say, she described uh, the importance of what she called opening a new battleground in the feminist struggle because she said that it's so such a hostile environment inside China that she's afraid that the feminist movement would not be able to survive without these... Uh, bases outside China that can help sustain the momentum of the women's rights movement. So um, she started a group called the Chinese Feminist Collective that's based in the U.S. There have been other activists who started other Chinese feminist groups in other countries like the U.K. and Canada, for example. And I have to say that that global diaspora of Chinese feminists has been really important um, they have not lost their relevance. They continue to influence Chinese feminists inside China and kind of keep the exchange of ideas flowing, where the censorship is so intense and aggressive inside China. Um, and they were also really instrumental in getting the message out about um, the Feminist Five when they were jailed in 2015. Um, and They're also very important in circulating uh, news about other feminist activists who are jailed or detained in recent years or if women's rights centers are shut down. Um, And so, so there's something very different about this women's rights movement from other activist human rights movements and human rights activists in the past, which... Who were largely male. I have to say, a lot of those human rights activists really lost relevance um, once they were exiled. And uh, but but the feminist movement in China is not so much about one or two famous individuals. It's it's about a collective, and that's where its strength lies. I think it's it's a large community, and it's hard to pin down any single leader. Um, And so that is in part why it's still surviving today, four years after the jailing of these feminists, who, by the way, had to be released because of a massive global outcry. And so this is where I I hold out some hope because I see so many young women in China who are embracing the idea of women's rights, if not outright calling themselves feminists. And so... um, in the face of these very grim policies coming from the, the Chinese government, I look at the actual young women on the ground both inside China and also you know some important feminist activists outside China who are still heavily involved in sustaining the momentum and 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 I am not without hope. in fact i'm I'm very inspired.
0: All right, well let's leave it there. Lida Hong Fincher is a scholar and a journalist. She was the first American to get a PhD in sociology from Tsinghua University in China. Her new book is Betraying Big Brother, The Feminist Awakening in China. And the old story we were discussing is In China Too by Pearl Buck from 1923. You can read that on theatlantic.com. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks so much for having me.